From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The world's tallest mountain has always been dangerous, but crowds are making Everest more so. Professional climber Jake Norton of Evergreen is just back, and he'll help us understand the problem. That's after a boulder man died descending the peak. Then, they're arguably one of the best teams the U.S. has ever produced in any sport, the U.S. women's national soccer team, which includes two Coloradans. But to see how they're treated, you wouldn't know it. The men's team is playing their games on natural grass, while the women have to play a large portion of their games on artificial turf. The men being given charter flights from U.S. soccer, whereas the women are having to fly commercial flights like the rest of us. Before the Women's World Cup, hear about Team USA's battles on and off the field. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A boulder man died on Mount Everest last week, just hours after reaching the summit. It brings to at least 11 the death toll this year on the world's tallest mountain. Climbers are sounding the alarm that the way Everest is managed leads to tragedy. For some perspective, we're joined by Jake Norton of Evergreen, professional climber, photographer, and guide. He has just returned to Colorado from his eighth Everest expedition. And Jake, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Your first expedition to Everest was 20 years ago. Contrast Everest then and now in terms of traffic. Yeah, in terms of traffic, you know, it's really gone up on Mount Everest uh, in the 20 years I've been climbing there. Numbers have gone up. Uh, Deaths, you know, interestingly, really haven't in many ways. You get spike years like this. you know what what's really changed is is who's going and how they're going to the mountain and that really impacts how how the crowds evolve on the peak and then weather of course is a huge factor right everest has always been dangerous that's not the news here but let's talk about the types of people climbing this mountain who might not have done so 20 years ago yeah what what's really evolved now is that you know it's it's become a game with a lot of outfitters of of numbers of getting more people uh, on the mountain and and more money in in outfitter coffers and and what that has done as is often the case is it, it's driven down the quality and the um, of some of the companies operating there so you're getting more paying customers now who are on more budget trips and therefore have fewer resources and and you're all f- often also getting people who have less and less experience on the mountain okay so you're saying that there are Outfitters that are really driven by profit, uh, perhaps they're taking risks and they're bringing people onto the mountain who may not be skilled enough to be there. Do I have that right? Yes, exactly. And it's not only the the paying clients who don't have the skills they had 20 years ago on on average, but also even the the staff on the mountain are are not always as skilled uh, as they used to be. So you're getting newer, high-altitude workers who don't have experience and strength up up in those high places. Okay, well, death on Everest, certainly not new. More than 300 people have lost their lives on the mountain over the years, avalanches, falls. Uh, but there is this concern of overcrowding. And I think of this photo that went viral showing dozens of climbers in line, waiting to climb the summit. Uh, You've seen that picture. What was your reaction to it? You know, a a mixture of both disgust and 
Yeah, it figures that I wasn't overly surprised. I don't think any of us were who have been there many times before. I, you know, the same thing to one degree or another happened in 2012. The last time I was on the mountain, uh, I believe it was there were 10 deaths recorded that year. And, uh, and the way things are going, especially currently on the Nepal side of the mountain, um, it's, it's not all that surprising. Okay, to be clear, it doesn't appear that the boulder man who died got caught in climbing traffic. Uh, this is 62-year-old Christopher Coolish. He was an attorney. His brother said his life's goal was to climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents, which he had achieved after he conquered Everest. Uh, he died after returning to the first camp below the summit, and the, the cause of his death is unknown. But suffice it to say, you think Everest is overcrowded? Yeah, yeah, I really do. And I think, you know, even just looking at the the nature of the deaths in recent years, if you take out 2014 and 2015, which 2015 was an earthquake, 2014 was a massive ice fall mm. uh, killing 16 Sherpa. Um, but in most years, what, what you're getting these days is not deaths from accidents per se, avalanche, ice fall. They're deaths from exposure and exhaustion. And that that's a direct indicator of too many people with too little experience being crammed into small windows attempting the summit and, and people end up dying often just from exposure and exhaustion on the summit ridges. Are they simply not in shape? Are they not fit enough? For this environment, yeah, I think it's you know it's a combination of not not just fitness but also experience in those altitudes, both uh, you know the physical experience but also the body's experience. Your body does get used to and better at at adapting to extreme altitude when you've been there and dealt with it before. And and we're getting a lot more clientele up there now who have who have no experience up there. Explain what's called the death zone. And how crowds can lead to fatalities in that zone. Yeah, so the death zone is is kind of an arbitrary zone. It's it's the zone above eight thousand meters, and that's just a, a number, kind of arbitrary number. But but above eight thousand meters, really, your body is no longer able to adapt to that altitude. You're burning more calories per day just surviving than you can take in. So you're you're slowly withering, dying, and so that's why it gets that charming name. And, uh, and this is true for even. The the most experienced yeah, climbers. Yeah, there's literally no no way your body could acclimate to that altitude. So My you goodness. are slowly dying. And uh, and what happens is when you're in the death zone above 8,000 meters for a prolonged period of time, uh, your, your senses, everything gets dulled. Your ability to stay warm, your ability to make good decisions, everything slowly kind of percolates downward. And so when you get a traffic jam, like what we saw on May 23rd on the south side, um, you're getting people waiting for hours um, on the summit ridge, which is well into the death zone. You're at 28,800 feet or so there for three, four hours. And people, especially if they don't have experience in those altitudes and how to understand their bodies, they really fall apart quickly. So you are waiting in the death zone, and that's not a place where you want to spend a prolonged amount of time. No, no, not at all. Again, especially without experience up there. Should there be a test to be on Everest? You know, I think a, a test might be a stretch, but I think we do need to go back to what 
a lot of outfitters used to do on the mountain, which is if you wanted to go to Everest, uh, no matter how much money you could pay, it used to be that you were expected to to have at least a, a modicum of climbing experience and optimally uh, at least one other 8,000 meter peak under your belt. So people knew that you were you were up to a certain level and a certain bar. But that was just an understanding. That wasn't a written rule. Yeah, not necessarily written, but a lot of outfitters made that a prerequisite for clients. And, and that has changed in the last decade, decade and a half. And I think we really need to go back to a system like that, you know, implemented by the government officials on the China-Tibet side and the Nepal side where, you know, it's it would be similar to what we have on Denali here in the U.S. where select companies are allowed to operate commercial enterprises on the mountain and they're held to task. If there's an accident or a death, it's investigated. If it turn, turns out to be negligence, then they stand to lose their concession on the mountain and that equates to a lot of financial incentive to do the right thing and make the right decisions. Fascinating. And are there fewer deaths as a result? Can we say that this works? Yes, definitely. I mean, you, you look at, I would say, two prime examples are Mount Rainier and Denali, and they they both, uh, you know, the deaths, they certainly happen. Accidents happen. You can't avoid that, but they're very managed and, and very within the realm of, of logic on those peaks. We're talking about how the world's tallest mountain is managed for climbers. A perspective today from Jake Norton of Evergreen, a professional climber himself, photographer and guide. He's just back to Colorado from his eighth Everest expedition. And there have been any number of expeditions, Jake, when you have not summited because the conditions simply weren't right. What kind of pressure is there, especially if it's your first expedition? You've spent a bunch of money to do this. Mm-hmm. The conditions aren't right, and yet everything about your bank account and your uh, Instagram account, I don't know what it is, <laughs> is telling you to summit. Talk about that tension. Yeah, I think that tension is is very real, and I, I feel for people in those positions. I, I remind people, you know, it took me three tries before I got up there for various reasons. I turned around in my first two trips, 99 and 2001, um, and I, I think the the real issue, and this happens not just on Everest, but on many mountains, where we as a society, as a culture, put the barometer of success on the summit. And, and I don't think that's necessarily true. You know, to me, climbing truly is about a process. It sounds trite, but it's a journey. It's it's a process not just on one mountain, on many mountains over many years. And, and the summit is just a small part of that overall process. And we, I think we as guides, we as climbers need to change that dialogue a little bit. So when you come back from Everest, it's not, did you reach the summit? It's, mm-hmm. did you have a good trip? Do you have all your fingers and toes? You know, are, are you alive? Those are the more important questions. I know that there are signs of just how deadly Everest is on the way up. In other words, you pass expeditions gone wrong. Yes. You pass bodies, don't you? Yeah, you do, especially on the side. I was just on the Tibetan side, which is much windier and drier than the Nepal side. And and so the bodies are not covered by snow. So yeah, it's... You know, it's it's gruesome. It's hard to face at times. But I think if there's a bright side to it, a, a silver lining of that tragedy, it's that 
hopefully that can those corpses can stand as you know a humbling reminder of our own mortality when we're up there and that you you can't pretend that if you do something wrong you might not be yet another person on the mountain we talked about the outfitters about the the kind of for lack of a better term discount quality uh is that a function of poverty you know i i think in not in a direct line, but like for Nepal, Everest is a very big revenue generator for one of the poorer countries in the world. So I think poverty certain certainly factors in, uh, but but I think it's more the you know the system that has developed on Everest that needs some changing and tweaking, where where you do have a rush for money, but it, it's not not directly poverty driven. Okay. But but Nepal is hesitant as a government to regulate that because it it is quite a big revenue generator for the country. Yeah, I I just want to reflect on a word choice that I used earlier that I'm not terribly proud of, which is I I described a climber as having conquered Everest, and I think that kind of language is related to what you were talking about, you know, man over mountain or woman over mountain, when this is really a question of safety as well. Jake, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jake Norton is a professional climber, photographer and filmmaker. He lives in Evergreen and just returned from Mount Everest, where crowds have created new safety concerns. A story now about victory and inequality. The U.S. women's soccer team is ranked number one in the world, and they're a favorite going into the World Cup, which begins this week in France. The team includes two Coloradans, Lindsay Horan of Golden and Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch. And just as they compete on a global stage, they're also fighting for better pay and working conditions. Sports journalist Caitlin Murray writes about the epic rise of U.S. women's soccer and their legal matches in her new book, The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. She's on Skype with us. And Caitlin, I guess the title of your book says it all, The National Team. (laughs) Well, it's not an accident that the book title is not the women's national team. You know, talking about it with my editor, we felt that what is the team that wins all the World Cups? What is the team that wins gold medals? What is the team that, you know, people can pick out a player in a lineup? They actually know who the players are. It's the women's national team. So we thought that was a pretty powerful statement to just call the book the national team. Yeah, I mean, this team over many years, uh, it's just one of the greatest teams the U.S. has ever produced in any sport. Remind us what they've done to earn that label. Well, I mean, they sort of changed the way people thought about soccer in the United States. I mean, when people think of the U.S. women's national team, I think they tend to think that the history of the team started in 1999. You can kind of understand that because they set record TV ratings, set record attendance ratings. They won the World Cup. They were on the cover of magazines when Brandi Chastain scored that penalty kick and, you know, was in her sports bra. And this is a team that really made soccer sort of cool, I guess, because one year before they won in 99, the men's team came in last place at the 98 World Cup, and they were sort of a laughingstock. So I think the women's national team has sort of changed the way we look at soccer in this country. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the 99 team, because this is the 20th anniversary of just an iconic cultural moment winning the Women's World Cup on American soil. 
Uh, that team included big stars like Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy. Here's what Lindsay Horan said in Denver to us in April about women's soccer then and now. I think it's getting better and better throughout the world, and especially here in this country. I think, you know, the national team has come a long way. I think I've always said this, the mentality stayed the same from the 99ers till now. I think we have an incredible U.S. winning mentality, and that will never change. Many will recall the image of Brandy Chastain celebrating after scoring the clinching goal against China in the final. For the second time, the United States has won the Women's World Cup, and Brandy Chastain gets the game winner in the PK. She was so cool and composed, and she comes. They made soccer cool and exciting in a country that really hadn't embraced soccer before. But I think it's interesting that Lindsay Horan is from the Denver area. You know, you spoke to her, and she talked about how. Uh, women's soccer is growing because I think Lindsay Horan is the perfect example of that. She's a player who skipped college, you know, skipped a scholarship with UNC to go play professionally in France. I think she sort of is a trailblazer in women's soccer. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a player having done that in 1999 when things started to change. So I think Lindsay Horan kind of shows how much women's soccer has changed over the past 20 years. Okay, but on this 2019 Women's World Cup team, there are the two Colorado players. Mm -hmm. But do you expect them to shine on a team of superstars like Alex Morgan, uh, Carly Lloyd, and Megan Rapinoe? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm here in Portland, Oregon, and Lindsay Heron plays for the Portland Thorns, and she's sort of at the center of everything that the Thorns do. She was the league MVP last year in the NWSL because she's so good. And I think what we've seen is that she's really good for the national team. Her influence is just not as much as it is here in Portland because she plays sort of a different role. She isn't necessarily on the ball as much, whereas here in Portland, everything is flowing through her. I do expect her to have a very good tournament, but like you said, it's going to be hard to uh, sort of break out of the shadow of some of the other players who are on the team. And then Mallory Pugh is a player who I think people forget how young she is. She broke through the U.S. national team when she was only 17 years old, and she just turned 21. She's the second youngest player on the team. So I think people kind of have expected her to start to play a bigger role, kind of forgetting that she is still really young. She'll probably be a player that comes off the bench and sort of impacts games as a substitute. And she's shown she can do that really well. She can come off the bench and kind of give defenses uh, trouble, especially when they've been playing for a while and they're a bit tired. You know, she can definitely score some goals in France. So it'll be fun to watch her and see how she rises to that challenge. I love the expression to give trouble. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so the, the U.S. won the last Women's World Cup in memorable fashion. Carly Lloyd with an amazing game in the final in Vancouver including a stunning half-field bomb. So we're talking here a a 54-yard kick. Lloyd with Morgan streaking. She's chipping the goalkeeper! Off the post and in! Hat-trick for Lloyd! Mallory Pugh told our own John Daly that when the team was here in April, the 2019 version of the team was looking to hold its own as the sport really gets more competitive. Yeah, I think internationally every team is getting better and better and they're catching up to us. But also I think we are growing as a team every day. What explains this kind of ratcheting up of talent in women's soccer? 
the U.S. has always sort of had this built-in advantage because of Title IX that's really inspired young girls to want to be good at sports so Uh they could get a scholarship and, you know, get a free ride to college. And then when they get to college, they're competing in these really sort of professional environments with their college teams. And the rest of the world hasn't had that. Uh, Another advantage that I think the U.S. has had is that soccer is sort of a younger sport in this country. So there isn't that long-standing, entrenched idea of it being a man's sport compared to some countries where soccer has been around for a really, really long time and it's always been played by men. Um, These are countries that are crazy about soccer. They love it. And as they sort of embrace the women's game, that is going to give them sort of an advantage because they have such rich soccer histories. They produce such good players on the men's side. Once they start doing that on the women's side, it's really going to present a challenge for the United States. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how this World Cup can potentially push that dynamic along even further. With this event being in France, you know, you would hope that the people of France get really excited about this event and it sort of maybe changes some minds over there in in Europe about women's soccer and just, I mean, it's really exciting if you give it a chance. Your book gets into some of the controversies, uh, failing to win big tournaments, coaches getting fired, star goalie Hope Solo's brushes with the law. Uh, uh, you, you have to write about the the good and the bad, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want this to be a fluff piece, I guess. I mean, for me, I think some of the most interesting things that the team has gone through is not necessarily the big games they played, although I, of course, talk about those. For me, it was really interesting to learn how much they had gotten into fights about equal pay and equal treatment, even back in the 90s, because I think that's an issue that has sort of been talked about publicly and come to the forefront in the last couple of years. The team filed a lawsuit against U.S. soccer in March, alleging institutionalized gender discrimination. There was also a filing in 2016. But I didn't know that For example, in the 90s, that Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy sat in a conference room with the president of U.S. soccer and sort of told him off (laughs) and told him to his face that they were never going to play soccer for him again unless he treated the team better. My guest is sports writer Caitlin Murray, author of The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. Just as Team USA heads into the World Cup this week, Players are suing their employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation. Yeah, so the women's team has two complaints. The easiest ones to understand are the non-monetary complaints, which is that they aren't treated as well as the men's team. So the men's team is playing their games on natural grass, while the women have to play a large portion of their games on artificial turf, which players say is much harsher on their bodies. Uh, The men being given charter flights from U.S. soccer, whereas the women are having to fly commercial flights uh, like the rest of us. And the other portion that I think is a little more complicated to understand is the compensation component, Uh where the women are arguing essentially that the men have more compensation made available to them. The complicating factor is just the fact that the women and the men have different compensation structures and they each collectively bargain for those. But in a nutshell, what the women are saying is that U.S. soccer makes far more money available to the men's team in the first place. So it's it's a question of the whole pie being bigger for the men. 
yeah, there are different bonuses and, you know, the women get salaries that the men do not. But if you look at how much individual players are earning, the men, they get way more money. And, you know, you look at the top 100 compensated man and the top 100 compensated woman, that man is earning multitudes over what the woman is earning. It's just more money is available. What you've laid out is so stark, the differences between men and women in compensation and in treatment. How does U.S. soccer defend that? Well, they have always stuck to this idea that the men bring in more revenue than the women's team. And I think it's an interesting argument because historically it has been true. For the last three years, the women's national team games have brought in more money than men's national team games. So it's sort of shifting. And I mean, part of that is the men didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. So they missed out on a bunch of prize money. They weren't bringing in as many crowds for their games. So U.S. soccer has pointed to revenue. I think that argument is getting weaker as time goes on. I also wonder if that is an argument that is going to work in their favor because, you know, the idea is equal pay for equal work. The women actually work more than the men's team. They play more games. They have to do more promotion. And because they play more games, they actually bring in more fans overall. That's why they have brought in more revenue. And one other factor I would say is that with TV broadcast, that's bundled together. So there's no way of knowing if the men bring in more. And that's a huge portion of revenue for U.S. soccer. So of this suit just a few weeks ago, a star defender, Becky Sauerbrunn, said the team is building off the legacy of years past, including the legacy of that 1999 squad. And I hope that the people that come after us will continue and just will keep fighting and fighting and working off each other's, you know, success and have really good momentum and hopefully get to a place where we feel like we're being treated and compensated the way that we feel is fair. Caitlin, do you think that the kind of judicial process, the lawsuit, like, does it add pressure to win the World Cup? Are these things related? Certainly, if you ask the players, they are going to say no. But what else can they really say? I think it does add pressure from the standpoint of one of the arguments that I think really works in the team's favor, maybe not, not, you know, in a legal sense, but certainly in a public relations sense, is that this team is a team of winners. The men's team are not winners. Therefore, the women need to be treated better. They need to be treated like winners. And if they were to fall short in France, I think that would sort of hurt uh, the perception. And I think people might talk about, you know, were they distracted? Should they be focusing more on soccer instead of getting into these fights with their boss, the federation? I think that winning would help them a lot. I don't think it's a coincidence that after they won in 2015, that's when the first equal pay filing came out. Was there um, an allegation of discrimination that you just found jaw-dropping? One thing I would say is it was a very different time in the 90s. So even though U.S. soccer did some things that were questionable, I found all these news articles of newspapers, mainstream major newspapers, referring to the women as babes and talking about their looks and their sex appeal and kind of not really talking about soccer, which I found fascinating because going into this World Cup, the 2019 Women's World Cup, there's going to be a lot of discussion of tactics and 
you know, the team's chances of winning and all those things. In 1999, they were talking about how attractive the players were. And one of the stories that really surprised me is Kate Margraff was a longtime defender for the U.S. women's national team. When she got pregnant, she was kicked off the team and it turned into a back and forth about pregnancy discrimination. And I feel like that's something, you know, people maybe don't really think about. And I sort of always took for granted that, you know, there are policies in place that um, provide maternity leave for the players now. But that was because Kate Markgraf got kicked off the team and got into this back and forth with U.S. soccer about oh. being discriminated against because she got pregnant. So interesting. I think about the bylines uh, of the articles that might have referred to uh, female soccer players as babes. I'm guessing that those bylines <laughs> were men's names and that it, it I, I wonder even if your own journey as a sports journalist also reflects the changes since then. <laughs> yeah, I definitely looked up some of um the people who wrote the really <laughs> sexist things that I found. <laughs> like there was this one guy who said, um, don't worry, after the Women's World Cup ends, you won't have to have brandy except, you know, after dinner. And the only ham you'll have to have is with rye bread. He was talking about brandy, Chastain, and me ham. Oh. And it was this very chauvinistic column about, don't worry, men's sports is going to dominate again after this 1999 Women's World Cup was over. And he's still writing. I went to look at some of his stuff. I think he's maybe scaled back some of uh, the sexist things he has written about. But it was, I mean, I did see some stuff from female columnists that surprised me oh. a little bit. One female columnist said that 1999 Women's World Cup looked more like a pageant than a sporting event, which I thought was a weird way to look at it. But I think the thing is, in 1999, what the women were doing was new and unique. There had never been a women's sporting event like that. And I think at the time, people just didn't really know how to reconcile or process this idea of a huge women's sporting event. Now we sort of take for granted, of course, the Women's World Cup is a big deal. It's a legitimate sporting event. It's exciting. We talk about tactics and the players and all that. I think in 1999, there were still figuring this out and getting used to this idea, which is crazy because it doesn't seem that long ago. But just another reason why this team sort of blazed a trail and sort of changed the way we think about sports. Well, that seems like the right note to end on. Caitlin, thanks so much for your time. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Sports journalist Caitlin Murray joined us via Skype. She has written The National Team, the inside story of the women who changed soccer. The U.S. women play their first game of the World Cup against Thailand June 11th. This year's national team includes Coloradans Mallory Pugh of Highlands Ranch and Lindsay Horan of Golden. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Now, the catch of the day. Or maybe not. An angler in Denver wants to know, can he safely eat the fish he catches in the South Platte River? His question came to us through Colorado Wonders, and it got us wondering as well. Reporter Haley Sanchez, CPR's Max Wysick News Fellow, reels in the answer. Eric Dow is a biology student at Metro State University. He started fishing downtown in the South Platte River because he doesn't have a car, so it's convenient. 
but he says he worries about the water quality and if the fish are healthy. Online, it seems like I would be able to eat the fish out of the Platte River that you would catch just right downtown, but people have told me not to, and I haven't. The South Platte River runs from the mountains in Park County, Colorado, all the way to Nebraska. The area of the river that travels through Denver is lined with a lot of sources of potential pollution, I-25, railroad tracks, and even trash operations. Several different agencies have a hand in monitoring water quality, so there's no one place to go for an answer about the fish. Let's start with Denver Public Health, where workers collect samples each week when the weather is warm. John Novick, an environmental administrator, says that's when people are most likely to be at the river. For public health, for people who are recreating in the river, E. coli is probably the most important one. But we're also monitoring for nitrogen and phosphorus and sediment as well as metals. If those tests find something harmful to human health, the department would warn the public. But he says it's been about a decade since they've had to. Denver Public Health isn't sampling the fish in a way to determine whether or not they're safe to eat. But Novik says it's an urban stream and there are pollutants that people may not want to be exposed to. Christy Richardson is an environmental toxicologist with Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment. The agency monitors the plat statewide to protect the public from potentially harmful substances. We've looked at 96% of the river and 75% of those river miles are meeting all of our water quality standards. Some of the river that doesn't meet standards is located in the Denver metro area. But there is urban development, wastewater, and sedimentation in other sections of the river, too. She says dischargers, like a water treatment facility, for example, are required to meet certain standards. For those who aren't meeting the guidelines, the state is working with them to clean up their pollution, and if that doesn't work, may even fine polluters for serious violations. Even though there are some trouble spots, Richardson says the overall river health is good. We have a lot of information that tells us that if we have a water system that's meeting water quality standards and we have a healthy fish population and a healthy bug population living in the river, um, then the water itself is probably um, of very high quality. Richardson isn't testing the fish either, but she recommends following state and federal guidelines of eating between one and three servings of fish a week. Now there's another source of potential pollution in the plat, and it's a big one. The water that goes down your sink, your shower, and even your toilet. Metro wastewater is one plant that treats some of it, and then dumps it back into the plat. Jordan Parman and Steve Lunt are water quality scientists with the agency. They monitor the river downstream of the plant's discharge, where they have a habitat improvement project for the fish. Jordan Parman. We noticed right away, even a few months after completion of this construction, that we had more fish, more individuals, so uh, species abundance, and also a greater diversity of fish, so a uh, number of species. Parman says the river once smelled bad, and people would dump trash in it. Now, he points to the thriving fish populations, and that's enough proof for Steve Lunt, who says he wouldn't worry too much about eating the fish. And as a water quality scientist with a master's degree in water quality and around chemistry and all that stuff, I know that fish consumption, you probably shouldn't eat a ton of them. So if I hadn't eaten the fish for a long time, I, you know, I would say, yeah, I would eat it. Alan Vida isn't so sure. He's with the University of Colorado, Denver, and researches the impact chemicals have on fish. And he says there's more to consider before eating what you catch in the South Platte. Mercury is far from being the only concern to fish health. Even if wastewater treatment plants were doing everything they could do to remove 100% of 100% of chemicals, there would still be a problem. 
He says there are still contaminants from storm drains that don't get treated and have to be accounted for. We still have significant runoff from agricultural operations, from intensive animal feedlots with antibiotics, hormones, and other drugs, as well as the legacy contaminants, many of which were banned decades ago but persist in our aquatic ecosystems. He says even when the water is well treated for contaminants, you'll still see subtle effects on fish health. He's found an odd sex ratio and even intersex fish. Vita says he definitely wouldn't eat a large fish from the plat because they're at the top of the food chain and likely have more contaminants. He says children and pregnant women shouldn't consume them at all. So, how does all this sit with people who have been fishing this river for years? That's common carp. Dan Lundahl and Scott Long fish the plat year-round. Lundahl says there's a variety of sport fish to catch. Uh, I've caught a 26-inch rainbow. Got a couple 24-inch browns upriver from where we're at, uh, which is literally a fish of a lifetime for many anglers. So, it's, it's amazing. And then, you know, the occasional shopping cart is always fun, too. Lundahl says he's pulled out everything from plastic bags to shirts, hats, and even boots. On the day we were at the river, I saw a tire sitting at the edge. I actually pulled that tire to there from out in the middle. It's heavy. Scott Long is especially involved in fishing. He's a contributor to the Strip Set podcast, which covers fly fishing all over the country. He says when de-icer is put on the roads during snowstorms, the runoff flows into the river, turning it brown. You know that all the fish in here, just by the nature of the food chain, are ingesting all of that. Both Lundahl and Long fish for sport and release the fish they catch in the plat. I would suspect that if you were to sample the meat in the fish in this river, you'd find some stuff that you wouldn't want to eat. Lundahl says he would only eat the fish. If I was absolutely desperate, yes. So, to answer Eric Dow's Colorado Wonders question, is it safe to eat fish from the South Platte River? Water quality officials don't have a yes or no answer. And researchers and scientists say in moderation. But to the guys who catch a lot of these fish, along with dirty diapers and a bunch of other junk, they're sticking to catch and release only. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. I'll tell you why I can't find you. Every time I go out to your place, you gone fishing. Ah, you know. But there's a sign upon your door. Uh Uh-huh. Gone fishing. I'm real gone, man. What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Send us a question through cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders, and there's a chance we'll answer it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR. But I can prove it. You ain't got no ambition. Gone fishing. Art is creative. It can be emotional, and it often reflects the artist. So why isn't art always taught that way? CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine has been sharing stories of innovation in Colorado schools. And today, she reports on one rural art teacher who has radically changed what happens in the classroom. Several years ago, art teacher Jessica Ruby noticed her students doing something really discouraging. I would give them their art and they would walk by my trash can and throw it away on their way out of my room. She wondered why they were doing it. She started researching and reflecting. She realized students were all making the same thing. Let's follow the steps. There was no room for creativity. Ruby says this is how art is still taught in many classrooms. But she realized it wasn't actually how artists make art. Ruby came across TAB, 
teaching for artistic behaviors, a different philosophy for teaching art. One tenet is the studio belongs to the artist. Ruby set out to transform her classroom. And then over here we have the drawing center, which I'm doing today. Instead of a single assignment, kids organically choose one of multiple art stations to work in. Metal embossing, bookmaking, pottery, sculpture, photography, fiber, painting. There's tempera, there's watercolor. The result is that Ruby's classroom is way more vibrant and way less orderly. It was a little scary to say, you know, I don't know where this is going. It was a little bit of adventuring into the unknown. But my artist self kind of told me this is going to be okay. We'll figure it out as we go because it is going to be a process. And she's seen her students dive more deeply into their projects. Tyler Dalglish loves bookmaking. And I already have completed my first book. What it's about? I'm just telling as much as I can about all the llamas and sheeps I've ever thought about. And then he adds a creative twist, like... The majestic llama, which is a king... And then his blacksmith gave him rocket boosters for his hooves. And there is order to the creativity. Ruby has taught the students a process that guides their thinking and creating of art. This week, the kids are exploring how artists get inspiration and how an artist conveys meaning. So start thinking about what is it that you want to communicate to your viewers? She begins the class with a short discussion to inspire ideas. Then kids peek at their individual Google Doc. Ruby's provided feedback to each on what they're working on. Edgar, here's a cool way to make a cardboard plane. Edgar Rivera reads his feedback. That's not really the type of planes I'm going for, but still it's cool. And does it fly? It flies, kind of. But it gets the creative juices going for Edgar to work on his own plane idea. Feedback for another student includes some paintings by Pablo Picasso. Ruby asks the student to think about the question, how do artists record or convey ideas about war? We have fancy scissors, regular scissors, glue. These kids relish the freedom to be creative. Alexis Rochaloya remembers art class at her old school. I fell down. I just wanted to make... Make something different than what the teacher was making. Then Alexis entered Jessica Ruby's class. My reaction was surprised because this is this is like some new world than that other school. Many say art is one of their favorite classes. It lets them follow their passions. A kid draws robots while two girls in the hallway take portraits of each other with digital cameras. Yeah, like they're emotional, like they're all happy. Yeah. No. Yeah, like no. their emotion. They debate whether their photo is showing motion or emotion, or both. All right, this is just going to take a quick minute. So just At the end of the class, after the kids clean up, they have reflection time. One artist answers questions from her classmates about how she made the piece. I like how you made the, like, the horn, but one question... Um, Jesse Ruby's advice to other teachers, start relinquishing some control, and you'll be surprised. Take slow steps, and you learn along the way. Jacob Eisler says he feels calmer when he leaves the art class. I get to express my feelings, sad, mad, in a way that just lets them go. Ruby's new approach respects the fact that kids are emotional beings, not just receptacles for academic knowledge. I mean, I've had kids come in today and say, I'm just going to paint because I'm not feeling great today and I just want to paint. And sometimes that's okay. And if my room can be that place, let's make it that place. Today, instead of kids throwing their art in the garbage, Ruby says kids bring all kinds of materials from home, full of ideas of what they want to create. I'm Jenny Rendine, Colorado Public Radio News. 
Finally today, a riot broke out at a New York gay bar on June 28, 1969. The Stonewall Inn was the frequent target of police raids, and the uprising there 50 years ago became a watershed moment in the gay rights movement. To mark the anniversary, gay and lesbian choruses across the country co-commissioned a choral work for June, Pride Month. The Denver Gay Men's Chorus and the Denver Women's Chorus are part of this collaboration. The resulting piece is titled Quiet No More, a choral celebration of Stonewall. Six composers wrote the ten different movements, styles that range from classical to musical theater to disco. The Quiet No More program also includes multimedia presentations, archival news footage, and stories of liberation referred to as Stonewall Moments, like this one from David Duffield of Denver. My own Stonewall moment came in 2012 when I saw the group Focus on the Family show up at a hearing on civil unions. I realized that if generations of Coloradoans never heard the stories of LGBTQ people, we could never escape the cycle of historical ignorance we were trapped in. That is why I created the Colorado LGBT History Project. The story of Stonewall is also told on stage through dramatic performances from a cast of characters. We are the village girls. Runaways, hustlers, street trash, gutter rats, flame queens, swish queens, commando kings, miss things. This is a scene from the movement Glorious Beauties. Artistic director of the Denver Gay Men's Chorus, James Knapp, says it's a tribute to those who faced the most harassment and who were on the front lines of the uprising. Trans people, drag queens, and homeless youth. They were outrageous. They were funny. They were bitchy. They were clever. uh, They were mean. And they were desperate. And they were the most hungry for change. There's a beautiful line in it that says, who hasn't gone to paradise without some sort of sacrifice? And it absolutely um, shows the tenacity and courage to fight of these glorious beauties. Other parts of Quiet No More look beyond the events of Stonewall, like the song We Are a Celebration. Here's T.J. Kazuka of the Denver Gay Men's Chorus. We Are a Celebration is it's almost like a retrospective, and it's standing up, and we are celebrating ourselves, celebrating our future, celebrating our children, celebrating what pride is about now, and the excitement of... You know, we want to thank those parents that are accepting their children as they're coming out and not kicking them out of the house.
we're accepting our elders for being able to tell us the stories and also being very appreciative that they made huge strides to get us to where we are, where we can have such incredible celebrations like Pride. And We Are a Celebration is a celebration of Pride and where we've come from and to our eventual future where we want to be. Quiet No More, a choral celebration of Stonewall, makes its Colorado debut Friday and Saturday with performances by the Denver Gay Men's Chorus and Denver Women's Chorus. This is at the King Center in Denver on the Auraria campus. The singers will then head to New York City, along with 500 others from across the country, to perform at Carnegie Hall. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.